1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joe Lombard, Assistant Professor of Arabic Studies and Translation at the American University in Sharjah, about The Study Quran, published by HarperCollins in 2015. The Study Quran represents years of effort from a team of dedicated translators and editors. Sayyid Hussein Nasr, Joseph Lombard, Maria Daycake, Janir Dali, and Muhammad Rustam, which has produced an unmatched product of scholarship. The text features a complete new translation of the Qur'an, as well as multiple complementary essays written by leading scholars of Qur'anic studies. The tome also includes over a million words of running commentary from Muslim exegetes across the centuries, including contributions from Sunni, Shri, and Sufi schools of thought, among others. This feature in particular showcases its encompassing and truly oceanic scope. The text proves noteworthy as well, given its intersection between confessional scholarship and Western academic approaches to Islamic studies. The text has already begun to make waves across North America and beyond, and has set a new precedent as not only a translation, but also a reference work on the Quran. Its user-friendly organization, moreover, will make the text accessible to just about anyone as it offers levels of depth according to what the reader seeks. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Joe Lombard. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for joining us this morning on New Books in Islamic Studies. Good morning, Elliot. How are you? Great. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this interview and... We like to start things off in New Books in Islamic Studies by asking about how you got interested in things. So could you tell us how did you become interested in Islamic studies and Arabic translation?
0: Well, I became interested in Islamic studies when I was an undergraduate at the George Washington University studying uh, with Said Hussein Nasser. I had taken various classes and uh, one of my very close friends, took a class with him and told me that he was the best lecturer that he had ever encountered. So I went into his class and I agreed with him. And I just kept on taking classes with him. And as I took more classes, I became interested. I was taking many other classes in various areas of religious studies. And in all honesty, I went in the direction of Islamic studies, perhaps more because at the time, Arabic was easier for me to study than Sanskrit. I was also interested in Hindu studies, and I went in the direction of uh, of uh, of Arabic studies, and I kind of never really looked back after that. I was just so absorbed in it. If I had gone in the direction of Sanskrit studies, I might have never looked back from there because I would have become so absorbed in it. So in, in some ways, it's almost accidental. Yeah. And, and you
1: mentioned Sayyid Hussein Nasser, who we'll, we'll come back to later, obviously, given his importance in the study of Qur'an. In addition to him, were there influential authors that you encountered in your undergrad or graduate work that really formed you as a scholar?
0: Well, you know, there were many, uh, there were many people whom I encountered. One of the people whom I, uh, I have always been influenced by, and I later actually had the opportunity to study with him was uh, was William Chittick. Um, I really love his work on Ibn al-Arabi in particular, and I, uh, I, I spent nights going through the whole of the Sufi path of knowledge, and I think I had to buy another copy because I had underlined almost every word. And then, um, of course, his book also on the Sufi path of, of love. Uh, and uh, I also... At that time, I had an opportunity to meet with uh, Vincent Cornell, and Vincent Cornell was uh, was very generous to me at that time and, uh, and uh, really helped me see ways in which one could say almost a more uh, rigorous and analytical approach um, could also work well uh, within the field. And I'm, I'm, I've always been very grateful to him for the assistance that he gave me at that time.
1: Well... Undoubtedly, a lot of different influences uh, come together in this project that you worked on, the Study Quran, that is the work of a lot of people, and specifically five authors. Could you, in a nutshell, tell us what what is the Study Quran and what makes it unique?
0: Well, the Study Quran is a collection of 15 essays, a new translation of the Quran, and a running commentary of about a million words on the uh, the Quran. It is in the genre, you might say, it follows the genre of the study Bible, of which there are now dozens in the English language. But it also goes a bit more in depth. If you go through study Bibles, you'll find that uh, that they often have what are more what one what they term more study notes. Whereas in the study Quran, because we have much less of the actual text of the uh, of the book that's under investigation to deal with, we are able to provide much more commentary on each verse. So,
1: what? What was the process like putting this together? You mentioned the commentary alone is a million words, and I, I think rightfully that's daunting
0: what yeah what was what was the process like? How long did it take? It took nine years overall, um, and the process was we really didn't exactly know how we were going to do this, and so I'd say that there were some missteps along the way, um, but the first thing that we did was as we decided, we went through and we did an evaluation of all of the translations of the Qur'an that were available. We had actually envisioned employing an existing translation of the Qur'an. But what we found was that none of the existing translations were consistent enough, accurate enough, and also eloquent enough to uh, serve as a base text for a study Qur'an. Especially consistency and accuracy being important in there because the Quran is so interreferential. And so we then decided that we should do our own translation, which, I, I don't know, I almost, I, I think I wish we had known more what we were getting into with that, but we decided to do our own translation. And that took us several years. And then when we were done with that, we sat down and we were going to work on the commentary. We were originally thinking that we were going to invite people to write uh, commentary on various chapters in the same way that many study Bibles are done, where you have scholars from all over who are writing uh, the commentaries. But as we went through, we became aware that due to the very uh, dispersed nature of the field of Quranic studies, this could be quite difficult. And even some people that we spoke to spoke about, well, can I do it this way? Can I do it that way? And so we realized that in order to have, you might say, methodological congruity throughout the volume, we should probably author this ourselves. That, of course, added years to the volume. But I think if you do look at the study, at the study Quran, it makes so that there is a much greater unity to the overall um, product. And while we were in the midst of that, this was my, myself, General Dale, and Maria Cake were the ones writing the commentary. We then brought Mohammed Rustam into the project about mm. right about the time that we were starting to maybe about about a third of the way into the commentary. Uh, we brought him in, and he was an incredible addition. He read through everything. He gave us many suggestions. It really helped to have a fresh set of eyes on the project,
1: and the physically, it's, it's beautiful as well. When you pick it up, the cover design and the page, it's, it's really kind of a, I mean, not, not kind of, it's a piece of art, I think, physically as well. And so you talked about you, you wanted to pay attention to style. And so what were, what were some of the features you were hoping to, wh- hoping to achieve by
0: finding the right style of translation to go with? Well, there are multiple things, but one of the things that we really wanted is something that, to some degree, mimics the relationship of Quranic Arabic to what we call Fusha or standard Arabic. Now, any reader of Arabic knows that when they pick up Quran, this is a different book. And even Christian Arabs... Will remark sometimes on the beauty of Quranic Arabic. And when people are translating, there tends to be an effort to translate into the modern idiom. But this would be something that doesn't stand in relation to the English language, the way in which Quranic Arabic stands in, into, uh, to, you know, the, uh, classical Arabic or what we would even call modern newspaper Arabic, modern media Arabic. So we wanted to keep that eloquence, what we would consider to be that almost kind of rarefied sound and ambiance to the language. Um, but at the same time, what re- we really wanted to make sure that we had consistency. So we actually established a um, an Excel word chart that has every single word and even commonly recurring phrases from the Quran in it so that we could make sure that we had every instance the same, or if we didn't have each instance the same, that we had a reason for not having them the same. Because there are certain phrases that are used differently, just like any language, um, but that we knew why we were translating them differently in different instances. And those were, to some degree, I would say, our two um, main considerations, as well, of course, as basic accuracy. Right. And so I I think the example of having this like Excel chart
1: goes to show that a reader who picks up the book isn't necessarily going to have have a sense of really went into the, really what went into the project. So, given all of the sort of calculus that you put into planning and implementing the project, what what would you say were your greatest like joys or even tribulations as you went through this nine year process? <laughs>
0: Well, I think that the, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that did happen as we came through the the project and as we read through it is we did realize that really there is nothing like this in the field of Quranic studies. And I think the greatest joy was realizing that we were achieving a study text which um, will have an impact on the field when you go through the history of any academic field or you go through the history of any intellectual uh, uh, um, kind of developments, you realize that the greatest projects are not those that people agree with. The greatest projects are those that everybody has to respond to in some way. And so we did come to realize that this is a project that will impact the field because everybody will know about it, and even the people who do not like it will feel that they have to respond to it, not that they can just ignore it or something along those lines, so that was something that we came to realize and and really did and and the frustrations you know we had a great team um and so a lot of the frustrations were just mitigated by the fact that we had a really excellent working relationship um through uh through much of of the process, and that we got to know one another uh, in a much deeper way,
1: yeah. Um, that sounds that sounds really cool and also really challenging. And you know, also you mentioned you you didn't grow up as a, a native Arabic speaker, and so you know, translating the Quran is, is is a serious matter. And so, what what was it like growing as a translator and developing that skill as you you went through the
0: process of putting the text together? Well, for me personally, it really helped understand the Quranic Arabic much better just because um, to see how elusive the language is and and how much it packs in. And many people like to translate by putting brackets in, especially when they're translating Quran. Um, They put brackets in and things along those lines. And I came to realize I think one of the main things that I came to realize through the process is that less translation is more. And it's very, very, very difficult to discipline oneself to realize that as one goes along and to start to trust the method that one has developed and the method that you've developed with others and allow that method to follow through on its own logic and get out of the way. Uh, as much as you can. Of course, that would be general to, to, to anything. Um, but also, you know, I was an English lit major uh, in uh, in college, in addition to a religious studies major. And I found that that also helped me tremendously in uh, in finding um, uh, phrases that were concise and really matched the manner in which uh, in which Quranic Arabic tries to uh, tries to pack a whole lot into a very uh, short amount of text. Sure. Are are there particular
1: words or expressions in the Quran that come to mind as examples where this, uh, the importance of less is more shines through in a particular way?
0: Oh, particular examples of that. Right off the top of my head, I, I could just say you could go to the Fatihah, yeah. you know, the first surah of the Quran. And that, that tax on incredible amount. Um, for example, just saying, You we worship, and uh, from you we seek aid. There, the whole process, is you have actually the same function that you have in English, where by virtue of putting the direct object in front of the verb... You have made the emphasis that it is you alone and you are the only one that we worship. And it is you alone and you are the only one from which we seek help. And these are the types of things that a lot of people will try to they'll try to elaborate with brackets or translate it as you are the only one who we worship. And you've killed it. You've just killed the sense of it right there. Whereas in English, we have the exact same process. You put the emphasis... By using the word order, you can't always do that because it's Arabic by the virtue of being an inflected language. It can always use word order uh, to put the emphasis in different places. Um, We can't do that in English. Um, But oftentimes we can. And this is one of those uh, one of those instances. uh, It's it's a very good example of a lot is packed into uh, into a little. And actually, by saying less, the Quran says more in that instance.
1: Uh And and I think. The, this this becomes all the more clear when you look at at the commentary for the Fatiha, which which goes on for pages, and so <laughs> it becomes clear right from the the get go that there's a lot going on underneath the surface, which I think is a really great signal for the reader. So, before we you, you mentioned some controversies, and I'd like to talk about some of those, but I was hoping we could first talk a little bit about the audience, because you mentioned that it's the kind of text that all sorts of people will respond to, and in a way, this is related to the issue of controversy. But in, in general terms, who are the audiences that you had in mind when you and your team were putting the book together?
0: Hey everyone. Anyone who is interested in the Quran basically, and wants, to, uh, and wants to read it. So this would include Muslims, this would include non-Muslims, but we did envision it being something that, that the main realm in which this text would operate, you would say, would be academia. And I think Bruce Lawrence put it very well in his review of the study of Qur'an when he said that anyone who is conducting research on the Qur'an or teaching a class on the Qur'an is going to have to take account of this volume. Um, and that, in a sense, is what, we, is what we saw. Now, if this was not the first study Qur'an, I don't think that one would necessarily have to say that about this volume. But given that it is the first study Qur'an, it is one where everybody's going to have to account for it in one way or another. So we did really have everybody uh, in mind. And we were aware as we went through the project, we became aware that if this book – is criticized by some people in academia as not fulfilling this proper academic standard or that proper academic standard, and by Sunni Muslims as not being properly orthodox, and by Sufis as not having enough esoteric commentary, and by Shiites for being too Sunni oriented, then we will have succeeded. It's, we're not trying to please any single one audience, but we're trying to have a dialogue which takes account of many of the different dialogues regarding the Qur'an that are currently occurring.
1: Sure. So if we could use this as a segue in talking about controversies, it sounds like one of the controversies is that you, you want it to be balanced, which is almost ironic that that turns into a controversy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it it makes sense because the Quran is a book that a lot of different people have have a stake in, right? So did how how did that play into your your planning knowing that the audience was going to have so such deep stakes and emotional investment in what this project looked like?
0: Well, it didn't because once you know that you're not going to please them, you don't try to. Uh-huh. You just try to do. You try to be true to the text and true to what you find. For example, in uh, in the commentary tradition, you don't want to follow a current uh, current trends within academia because those trends are going to be different in five years. We know how academia works in this way. Um, nor uh, do you want to be uh, to try to make sure. Oh, I need to. I need to. Uh, make sure that I don't upset um, you know, neo-Asherites with how I treat this particular verse because it's so important to them. That's just not a consideration that, um, that you can take into, uh, in, into account while you're doing something like this. You have to be true to the text. One way it did that you know, I, for my own part, in the sections of commentary that I worked on, if you look, the way that we have in parentheses references to multiple different commentaries – um, is to sometimes be tricky and put down that this particular idea is in a commentary that people tend to consider conservative. Um, it's also in a commentary that people consider uh, esoteric, and it's also in this particular Shiite commentary. So that if you really look at the notes, you'd be like, you just look and be like, that's really interesting that I have so many different schools that I would think would diverge on this particular verse actually being in agreement and all relating the same opinion.
1: So one one of the things the text does then, and this this has, you know, just been clear from other interviews you've given and things people have written about the study of Quran is that this surprises people, right? That there's you you look at so many different kinds of perspectives and it turns out that yeah, sometimes really different people are, are seeing really similar kinds of conclusions. And there, there's there been some other sort of things that have raised controversy. Uh, I mean, we could maybe go through a, a list, but are there, are there particular things that you've found, you, you've gotten some kind of useful critique from it?
0: Well, in terms of the useful critique, it's mostly been people who have contacted us regarding um, linguistic issues and uh choices that we made uh in in the translation uh i have there are actually a few places where um for some future editions actually i think you can actually find it in the third printing where there are several changes minor changes but changes in uh in the way that certain verses are translated and these are because of things that colleagues contacted us and said you know what about this verse and said oh here, I think that, for example, you've misread uh, the way in which this, um, you know, particular conjunction is being used, which, you know, in Arabic, the conjunctions serve all kinds of functions. And sometimes then you go back and you look at it and say, you know what, I, I actually think that they're right. That's a just criticism. And those have really been um, the most useful um, uh, criticisms uh, that we have had. Uh-huh. And... Could you say a few words about
1: some of the criticisms that you haven't found useful that people still want to insist on?
0: Well, you know, these types of criticisms come from two arenas. One, you have some people in, uh, in academia. Um, and two, there, are, uh, there are, are Muslims. Now, within three days of the volume being published, you had Muslims going online decrying it for being what they called perennialist, a word that those who were the detractors still haven't defined um, what they meant by it. Um, because actually we were very conscientious about not uh, not imposing any one particular school of thought on the commentary. Um, and, uh, and then there have also been some people who have said that this was a faith-based or confessional approach. I even had one scholar saying that this book can't be taken seriously because there were no non-Muslims working on the editorial team, Um, which, uh, unfortunately for me, that's just a way in which uh, you see subtle ways in which Islamophobia still informs neo-Orientalist discourse. Um, But also to say that it's faith-based, which some people have tried to say, is to simply have not read the book very carefully. How can it be faith-based when, on the one hand, you're giving a Shiite interpretation, on the other hand, you're giving uh, a Mu'tazilite interpretation, on the other hand, you're giving an Asharite interpretation, and then you're also giving a Sufi interpretation or multiple Asharite interpretations of the same particular verse. I myself am a Sunni Muslim, Um, But there are multiple places where opinions regarding verses that I don't agree with are flat out in there in parts of the commentary that I wrote. This really wasn't a question of of trying to present a particular orthodoxy uh, and trying to promote one view of orthodoxy. And that's something that has actually confused a lot of people in a lot of ways. On The one hand, you've had some non-Muslims say that that's what we were trying to do. On the other hand, you've had other Muslims trying to say, you've had Muslims saying that we were trying to advocate a particular heterodox vision of Islam. That's the one that's really actually confused us. Um, And what we've basically learned with, uh, with the detractors among the Muslims is that no matter what we had done, those particular criticisms would have come out. One, because of misinterpretations that people have of what Sayyid Hussain Nasser has said in other of his works, but also, you know, quite frankly, because there's a lot of, uh, as you said before, there are a lot of people who have an emotional investment in this text, and therefore, they want to be the ones who are in the position of authority to say what it means. And that personally, go on. Yeah.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, in terms of emotional investment as well, there's, there's a flip side as well, which is a lot of, you know, teachers, for example, have an emotional investment in you know, making their classes as high quality as possible and finding the best resources that they can. So I was going to ask on (laughs) a, On a note of gratitude, what, what kinds of positive reactions have impressed you in terms of things people have been getting out of the text, using it in their classroom, things that they've really been appreciating?
0: I've had, I've had several colleagues um, talk about how they've, they've actually found one, uh, one school that has a curriculum for great books of world, uh, of world literature. Uh, told us how grateful they were that with the study Quran they could actually now include the Quran, because before this they felt like they didn't know how to teach Quran to their undergraduates. So now they can use this. Now they also complained about the translation, said the translation was just impossible to deal with with uh, with undergraduates. Um, I kind of disagree because I even I even use the text with non native English speakers. And I find that once they've worked with it for a week or two, they get used to it and they, and they can understand it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that has happened. And I had one colleague uh, who sent me a note that one of her students actually said that said that this book really uh, set the class apart from other classes that she had had. Um, and, uh, and really made her feel that she had understood the Quran and was able to plumb the depths of the Quran and the Islamic tradition. So, in that way, I think it's been, I, I do think that it's something that will help teachers, uh, both of Islamic studies and outside, um, to be able to access uh, the Quran. In fact, I think it's just like if you go into uh, you know, uh, the office of almost any scholar. Of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, they usually have one study Bible on their shelf because they have to refer to it now. I think this will be something where every scholar of other uh, traditions can now have kind of one book on their shelf that when somebody asks them about the Quran or it comes up in something that they're dealing with, they can look to this and get a better idea of how that's dealt with within the Islamic tradition.
1: And you, you mentioned teaching the Quran. I mean, teaching the study Quran to non-native English speakers. So you're based in the <clears throat> United Arab Emirates right now. What yes. what kinds of experiences have you had um, sharing the project outside of the context of you know quote unquote Western academia? And I realize this is a generalization, but you know a lot of, a lot of the times. Scholarship in the so-called Western world and the so-called Muslim world don't necessarily interact with each other in the closest kinds of ways. So I, I, I think our, our listeners and I would be curious to know what kinds of reactions you've seen where you're currently based.
0: Uh, well, for the most part, now I, I have to say in my classes, I haven't used it next semester. I'm going to be using it for a class here. Um, but to answer your question more broadly, this gets to a very important point with the study Qur'an overall. And, you know, this is actually an issue that you yourself alluded to, I believe, in the recent article that you wrote regarding the study of of the Qur'an in Western academia. That was in, in the Journal of, of AAR. Well, thanks um, for the plug. <laughs> Not at all, um, but uh, but this is an issue where there's there is this divide. We are aware of this divide, very much aware of this divide, and how we were doing the study Quran. One of the problems is that many people within Western academia have argued that you can't use the classical commentary tradition and the classical texts dedicated to the study of the Quran for effective study of the quran within the western academic context my position is that with the study quran we have demonstrated that that is not true it might it's not the only way in which you can study the quran but it is one of the ways in which the quran can be studied within the western academic context furthermore the classical islamic tradition is deeply invested in many of the same questions that we have in the modern academic tradition. For example, history, the provenance of the text, and linguistics, the language of the text. These are actually two of the major questions, and there are a lot of ways in which this is dealt with in the classical commentary tradition. This is not something where we have to accept the answers of the classical tradition, but we must engage them for effective study of the Quran in the Western tradition. And we can move, I believe we can move, towards a, uh, a more effective dialogue between people studying the Quran in the Islamic world and people studying the Quran in the Western academy. And it's of the utmost importance that we do it for the Western academy itself. Because in the Western Academy, we are but a tiny, tiny little fraction of the people who are studying the Qur'an around the world. And there is much that we have to gain from uh, the approaches that are being taken, for example, in Iran or in Indonesia or in uh, in parts of the Arab world where some of the best linguistic work work on the Qur'an is being done.
1: And and so – on this point that in in the the so-called Western Academy, that if we put too much emphasis on the classical commentary tradition, then that's somehow deficient on a certain level. Could could you say a little bit more about
0: what's at stake there? Well, I think what's at stake, Behnam Sadiqi actually said it very well. And he said that some of the arguments within the Western Academy that have developed since the 1970s, Have led people to brush over mountains and mountains of material on the Quran and on early Islamic history. Those mountains of material might not all be useful, but you have to go through it first in order to declare what is useful and what is not useful. Now, for example, we really can't, I mean, we really have to go in and look at what certain scholars have said about the, the Arabic, the basic linguistics of the text. You know, go through, and, for example, the 27 different ways in which the harf, wow, can be used and how those are found in the Qur'an. If you don't know that, you really can't do effective analysis of Qur'anic Arabic or really any classical Arabic texts. But these are things that a lot of people have skipped over in fundamental ways, and, uh, and there has been a process. Unfortunately, you still have this trend in some uh, schools within Quranic studies in the West, which will maintain that anything that supports the classical Islamic theological understanding of the tradition – was probably made up in order to support that theological understanding. If you think about it, that's a very racist and biased way to interpret the tradition because it basically says they did not have the capacity to think forwards. They did not have the capacity to work from the data that was available to them and develop conclusions based upon that rather they had conclusions they had positions and they had to work backwards from those to create stories to create myths regarding the origins of the quran to uh, have to say what this story was actually about in the quran Um, that did happen in some instances but to say that that's what the entirety of the classical tradition did in its historical accounting and in its commentary on the text is simply racism. Sorry to say it. Yeah.
1: And you, you get at this point that I think is really, really important for just like thinking about research and understanding more broadly, which is, you know, in order to have conclusions and know what the, less useful information is. You need to go through these mountains and mountains, which is oftentimes a lot of work and, you know, unattractive for, for any number of reasons. And, you know, going back to this point earlier that people critique the text because it, it doesn't sort of verify a particular worldview that someone brings to the text. Are there, are there things like the study Quran in, in Arabic, for example? And, and if so, what kinds of similarities or differences do we find
0: in these texts? There's nothing exactly like the study Quran um, because the the study Quran cuts across so many different schools um, of thought. There are um, books that have been done in Arabic where somebody brings together, for example, all of the, the ways in which different schools have cited different verses of the Qur'an. It doesn't say, this is my conclusion, this is what I think here, this is what I think there, because through the ways in which all these different schools have cited it. But it's more like a list that you have for scholars. It's not put together in a kind of synoptic synthesis uh, in the way that we've done it in, uh, in the study Qur'an. And, of course, the thing about the study Qur'an is that we had to make this accessible to audiences that have little familiarity, and so that it can be used. You do need some, you know, preparation for it as a student, but it has to be something that could be used by a broad audience while also appealing to specialists. And therefore, there really isn't anything, you know, quite like it. You know, you know of course, Jalalain is the most widespread commentary that's kind of simple. You know, it's, it's, it's far more text than what, for example, the Jalalain commentary does. Um, It's probably equivalent in size to the commentary of uh, of a Shokani and Shokani is a very good commentary. Um, But again, his commentary is focused upon mostly his particular school within Sunni Islam and it's not going to be given. Actually, I think he wrote it when he was a, a Zaydi, but that's another story. Um, but, uh, but it's not giving you, okay, here's what the Shiites say about this verse. Here's what the Ashrites say about this verse. Here's what the mu'tazilites say about this verse. Here's what the Sufis say about this verse. It's not going through in that way.
1: So in terms of particular passages, the, the team divided up more or less the, the, the translation into different sections—is is that right? Yes. And which which sections did you focus on mainly?
0: For myself, I translated the Fatiha. I translated Surah thirteen Arad, and then everything from Surah twenty nine Al Anqabut to the end Surah an Nas. Uh huh. And but when it comes to the, one thing needs to be emphasized here that when it comes to the translation, that's really a team effort. I mean, we really, we really, while I was the primary translator, you know, there are places where things were reconfigured and there are even things in the translation that I would say, I still don't agree with that. But that's the way that we settled on translating a a phrase like, uh, uh, with waters flowing beneath it, um, which occurs 27 different times in the Quran and has to be rendered the same way, basically, uh, in most of the instances. So that's, you know, something where that really was a team effort. And so when you look at the translation, it's a product of four people working together with different people who are the primary translator for each section, whereas the commentary is really individual efforts. Sure.
1: In in terms of the parts that you translated, just on a totally subjective level, Do you have like favorite verses or were there things that translating it was just like an extra special experience for whatever
0: reason? Extra special experience. I don't know. I mean, translating the whole of uh, really, I think the last 60th of the Quran, you know, which is that the parts that are those really short verses that are some of the first ones uh, they say to have come down in the process of Revelation, which have really these very short, very powerful verses, uh, you really, and that, again, is, is where, again, economy of words, realizing how much was packed into that economy and trying to just get out of the way and let the English language have that impact as well. That was... Uh, That was really a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. I don't think I fully pulled it off, Um, but uh, but it was wonderful to uh, to uh, to be in the process of uh, of uh, of attempting uh, to do that and really find ways to make these same types of allusions in English. Sure.
1: And. In terms of particular words or phrases, you've, you've mentioned some of them. Are there, are there other ones that come to mind that either was very clear that you are going to deal with them in a certain way or things that gave the team particular pause because of the, the sensitive nature around these terms and phrases?
0: Well, there are uh, terms and phrases in there which I think – each member of the team probably still disagrees with um, that, you know, we, uh, we settled on a particular translation. Um, I would say that um, that uh, for, to be quite honest, the one thing that is the most difficult to translate in Arabic is probably the harf wow, which usually you translate as and, but it has 27 different functions in the Arabic language. It can be a semicolon. It can be a period. It can be a colon. Uh, it's m- often used as a comma or as we would use a comma, um, but it can also, uh, you know, it can be a conjunction. It can also be a preposition in certain uses to decide in some instances what the function is of that particle was, is something that that was, was extremely difficult. And we had a lot of arguments about that. <laughs> um, and it's, it's interesting because sometimes the technical words that you thought were going to take a really long time to come to agreement on, well, we came to agreement on them rather quickly and we put it in. But then these tiny little minutiae You know, of how do you translate the B or the B, which sometimes means in or for or to or through in Arabic in this particular instance becomes a really kind of, uh, you know, gut wrenching issue, especially because you go through the commentary and they'll say, well, it could be read like this. 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 this." Um, And so they're like, you know, all of those possibilities are here in the Arabic. okay, well, I can really only convey one or two in the English. Which way do I go here? Um, that was really the most difficult uh, dimension uh, of it. I'd say also, you know, if you want to do a key word, kufr, which is usually translated as disbelief in the in the Quran. Um, and as we know in its root meaning, it kind of means, um, uh, you know, covering over things. But really, in a sense, the way that it's used in the Quran and in the Islamic tradition indicates misbelief, which is really not you know something that would look good in an English translation. And you see that people, they're not completely disbelievers because they do believe some things, but it's misbelief because you can even say, and even the Quran says this regarding people who followed the Prophet Muhammad uh, during his life, it called, it refers to them as, um, you know, kafirs, people who are guilty of, of kufr. For some of their behavior. Um, and so, you know, to say disbelievers would not work in those instances. So that's one of those ones where I don't feel like there is almost any satisfactory way. When you go to the word iman, iman doesn't fall into, we translate it usually in English as faith or as belief. Neither one of those words really fits the idea of iman in the Quran, because in the Quran, it's actually a degree of insight. And as a degree of, of, it connotes a degree of actual perception of the truth, um, rather than just acceptance of it, as we tend to think when we talk about, um, about belief and faith in English.
1: What, what about the term Islam? This is something that I think a lot of people who teach the Qur'an struggle with in terms of thinking about capital letters and perceptions students might come to about the term? How did, how did you handle that word in the text, or its cognates like Muslim?
0: Yeah, we actually uh, um, we did have some debate about that, and there were some among us who wanted to maintain Muslim and wanted to maintain Islam, um, and others, myself among them, who wanted to just use the word um, submitters. Um, For Muslims and uh, and we ended up going with submitters um, and Islam as uh, as submission. Um, And in part, the reason for doing that is, as I said before, we wanted consistency. Well, the verbal form of Islam is often used, you know, um, those who, you know, uh, those who submit their faces uh, to God, um, and that seemed to be able to maintain that integrity across the verbal forms and the the noun forms of the verb. Um, it seemed best to use uh, submission um, as uh, as the word, even though some people would say submission is 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 too much uh, in that instance. But I think that it worked well uh, to maintain that, and I also think that at the time. When the Quran was first being spoken as a public document, that that is the way in which the word would have been. That's the closest thing we can get to the way in which the word was understood in that historiolinguistic context.
1: So, I think a, a clear theme, and I mean, just looking at the book and from all the things you've been saying, is that there's a really clear didactic emphasis in the text and thinking about style and consistency and concision as much as possible. Um, you want this text to really be accessible for a wide range of people. And so you mentioned that you're you're planning on using the text for the first time next semester in your classes. Yes. Could, yes. could you say a little bit about your, your plans and your own pedagogical uh, approach that you,
0: you want to take? Well, you know, it's. I have the whole summer to think about it, um, so I haven't. I haven't put too much time into it, but I can say that um, I have taken uh, comments. My colleague Muhammad Rustam is using it right now in uh, in his class, and uh, he has said that there's been a a great reception to uh, to using it and just allowing people to read a particular. Uh, surah and then read the commentary and uh, and go from there to delve into the topics that are dealt with within that particular surah of uh, of the Quran. So for me, what this will and following that lead, I think this will mean that I kind of change the way in which I have taught the Quran in the past. Because you you can't really just give somebody Quran and say what does this mean because it jumps around so much whereas now i feel like i can do that i can give somebody you can't give somebody you know sort uh, of uh, the uh that's sort of the cave 18th sort of the quran in the same way that i think you can give somebody like the book of matthew um and uh and just say okay so what do we understand from this what are these parables etc cetera, etc cetera. because it jumps around so much and it's so elusive whereas now with this commentary I feel that you can. So when, for example, I go into discussing the theme of the relationship between the world of this world and the heavens and the hereafter, uh, or what the Qur'an refers to as the alam al-ghayb, the realm of the unseen, then I can do something like use just Surah 18, Surah al-Kahf, Surah of the Cave, in the Qur'an, and then have a, a discussion uh, that develops from there Uh, with the students. Uh, And so for me, I'll use far less essays in how I teach the Quran uh, and rely far more on the translation and the commentary to help engage those points. And I think that will lead to a more organic discussion of the text. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes to show too, how, you know, whether we
1: have 10, 15 weeks and you have a class on the Quran, it's um, it's like it's impossible to teach that class, but you have to make decisions anyways. So there's so many approaches yeah. you can take, and you know get a lot out of it in either case. And I'm looking forward actually to assigning the. Text for the first time in my grand class this fall, so I'm excited as well you and I
0: will be using it together for the first time so I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you have that you have decided to use it I know you go through a lot of books so as part of this program so you get to see everything
1: yeah it'll be it'll that'll be an exciting narrative to add to it as well as I can tell the students that that Joe Lombard is himself is using the text as well and that we're we're embarking on a process together as it were. <laughs> Um, so I think that's, that's really helpful and gives, uh, educators, uh, college teachers something to think about in terms of how they could benefit from using the text in class. And thank you so much for your time today, Joe, Be- before we conclude, I was hoping that I could ask you a little bit about what you're working on next, what your current projects are. Could, could you say some words about that? What, what you're currently working on? Or you have a book that recently came out. So maybe, could you say something about that?
0: Oh, yeah. I have one book that came out um, that's uh, Ahmed Al-Ghazali, Remembrance and uh, the Metaphysics of Love. In a lot of ways, this is kind of my first love within the field, um, which is uh, dealing with Sufi poetry um, and the way in which which discourses regarding love uh, developed over time within uh, the classical Sufi tradition. Um, and, uh, so I've got, kind of gotten back into that and I'm actually going to be getting back into some work that I did on the brother of Ahmed Al-Ghazali, Abu Hamad Al-Ghazali, regarding specifically the influence of Sufi works in, uh, in his epistemology. Uh, but also within the field of Quranic studies, I have of course noticed many things and, um, many areas, uh, where there's a lot of room for development in the field. Um, and uh, and I, I'm currently working on some projects uh, that I hope will actually, in a sense, expand upon um, the the nature of what we've done in the study Quran to lead to more multi-volume works that will um, help create uh, the types of reference sources within the field of Quranic studies that we currently have in the field of uh, of biblical studies in the Western academy. Um, and, uh, and really help move the field uh, forward. Thank you again so much
1: for joining us today, and I'll look forward to uh, keeping up with your work.
0: Thank you, Elliot. I look forward to keeping up with your work as well, and thank you for taking the time to, uh, to do this interview and for your interest in the study quran. It's been a pleasure. Take care. You
1: too. That was my conversation with dr joe lumbar assistant professor of arabic studies and translation at the american university in sharjah about the study quran published by HarperCollins collins in 2015 thanks for listening